Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, and thank Jonathan for talking me into doing Mark. He's been petitioning for Mark for a while, and uh, we're here. And I'm excited for it, um, but I will give a little confession right front. I feel like I've, I've neglected Mark in favor of the other Gospels, and maybe many of you have too, that we uh, tend to look over, okay, Mark's just the shorter, less impressive version of Matthew is what you hear from a lot of people. But I'm thankful for my, my study in it this week and what I've learned, and I think it's going to be really helpful to us. But sadly, this book, in, for many people in the modern church and throughout church history, it's been neglected in favor of one of the other synoptics. The word synoptic just means a summary. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of summarize the events of Jesus' life, and John is a little bit different. We'll get into that in a moment. And it's funny, as I talk to pastors in my life who've been ministering for years, they always go to John. Uh, most of them have preached through either Matthew or Luke, but not as many have preached through Mark. And so um, hopefully this will be beneficial to the church, and I know, I know it will. And so one of the things I like to do when I introduce a book is to give you an overview of the book itself, the writer and the writer's purpose. Because if you understand the purpose of the writer, it will help you to understand the purpose of the book. And even before that, when we deal with the gospel, one of the questions I hear so often, probably right up there next to why are there so many different uh, interpretations of the Bible. Uh, they usually mean translation, but uh, the other one is why are, there, why are there four gospels and why do they tell four different stories and why do they disagree with one another? This is what skeptics usually will, will say. And so this is important for us to understand. Why are there four Gospels? And what is the content and purpose of each Gospel? I want to do that briefly. So it's important for us to understand there are not four Gospels. There are four accounts of the same Gospel. There are four perspectives, four witnesses to the same events. And each writer, uh, through the Holy Spirit, gives their own personality and their own take on it. And so it's important for us to think that we take it for granted in a culture that everything is documented. We almost feel like it doesn't happen unless someone catches it on camera, right? But in a culture where there was no media, there was no audio, no video, how do you confirm that something actually happened? How do you corroborate events if you have no 24-hour news cycle to tell us that it's true or not, right? So what would happen is, we see that throughout Scripture, and if you've been in our Deuteronomy study, especially even on Wednesday, we dealt with this, the importance of witnesses. The Bible is, has always been consistent, and that in order to corroborate or confirm events or to prove someone's innocence or guilt, you want, you want at least two or three witnesses, and that's what we have here. And so the, the analogy I like to use when we start a, a gospel, I think it's helpful. Why four gospels? All right, let's Think about an event in our own life. Let's say a, a car accident happens right out front, and this happens right after service. Someone's standing out there, and they just happen to be on the phone, and they're watching these two cars come at each other. And there's also a neighbor across the street sitting on her porch drinking her coffee, and then someone else walks out as the accident happens. And then the police come, and, and they're trying to figure out what exactly happened, so they interview people who were there. And so the lady across the street is going to say the car came from the left, hit the car on the right. The person standing at the church is going to say the car from the, the, the right, hit the car from the left. Well, no, they, they disagree. You can't believe them. Well, they're standing, standing on two opposite sides of the street, and they have a different perspective. And if any of you have ever had to figure out something that's going on, if you've got multiple children, and you know that anytime something happens, they're all going to have their individual story with their individual details, and they remember what, what is most vivid to them, and they, they see what is most important to them. 
And so in this car crash analogy, the police are going to go around and they're going to get details from the woman across the street. They're going to get details from the person who came out in the middle. And they're going to get details from the one who's been there the longest. He said, oh, I I saw the lady arguing with her husband and leaning back and and yelling at her kids in the back seat. And that's why she couldn't see. So the the one who has the most perspective is able to give some, some motivation behind it. Well, then the police are going to go around and they're going to ask all of the different witnesses and get all of the information so that they can have a complete picture of what went on. This is a mirror of our four Gospels. Each one of them has their own purpose. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, and his purpose was to show that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David, and he shows the Old Testament fulfillment. He is is the one who wants to make sure that all the significance is tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke would be the, the researcher, the one who comes along later, who interviews hundreds of people who walked with and saw Jesus. And so Luke tells uh, Theophilus, the one he writes his gospel account to, that I'm writing an orderly, complete account so that you'll have certainty. And that's kind of his desire. John, who's the most close eyewitness, the disciple that Jesus loves, has this, this intimate, alongside him relationship. And John is the last one to write. But John is the one who has the most perspective, and and he writes in in a time when people are preaching different gospels and trying to twist who Jesus is. And so John doesn't write a synoptic or summary gospel. He writes a theological gospel, wanting to prove the, the spiritual nature of what God was doing through Jesus Christ, knowing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke exist, and so he doesn't have to go through all the details that they did. So you get four men inspired by the Holy Spirit, written along by God's very hand, and their personality, perspective, and purpose is in the letter. And so that's the quick broad strokes, but what sets Mark apart? And so uh, Mark is written in direct, everyday Greek language. It's written for the common man, and uh, critics have called it artless and pedestrian. And if you don't know what those words mean, you are probably artless and pedestrian. But what they mean, when they say artless, it's just simple. That Mark is not an educated man. This is too lowbrow to be concerned about and um, not very creative. And uh, pedestrian is more lowbrow. Basically, everyone else is driving and Mark is walking. And it's just too, too simple and too basic to be, to be bothered with. So this is what some of the uh, critics will d- dismiss in Mark. But Mark's distinct style is important. And once we get into who Mark is and and where and when he wrote, you'll get that. But some of the distinctives we get in Mark is that Mark writes in a vivid, personal style that does not occur in the other Gospels. So Mark will give you details about Jewish and and Roman culture that we don't get in the others. Um, Mark's not concerned with biography or history. Mark is just declaring, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. Believe in him. Mark is straight to the point. And Mark is not about a gospel account. He is about the gospel. That is his primary concern, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we get our titles, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Matthew, these came around in the second century, about 100 years after Mark wrote. So that we know this is the gospel account according to this particular witness. 
And what we get from these four perspectives is we get a unity, and they, and they complement each other, and they, they build on the foundation of the person work in Jesus Christ and bring their messages together. And so now I'm going to go into the history for a moment. And so whenever I get into history, some people get really excited, people like, like me who just love to read old things and try to picture themselves into the, the time and place when these things are written, and some of you are going to get bored. Don't get bored. Uh, don't, don't check out here because I said history. This is important. Why is this important? Because I want you to know why we can find confidence in the Bible that we have, why we can find assurance in who wrote this and why, and why we can stand confidently on these words. And, and they're, they're not just outdated ravings of a couple of, of crazy followers of a crazy man. These are real historical events by real historical people, and they have real impact on everyone's life who reads them. So the first thing we're going to learn about Mark is that he was a disciple of Peter. Church, tr- church tradition tells us, and even within Scripture, that Mark is closely associated with P- Peter. And so to understand Mark, you have to understand Peter. And uh, we'll get into that in just a, a moment, but one of the things that Peter is famous for is talking about being an eyewitness. And the, uh, the certainty that they have of what they've seen. So if Mark is a disciple of Peter, he's listening to Peter talk day in and, and, and day out and listening to Peter's sermons, he's going to absorb Peter's teaching style. So the first text I want you to see is 2 Peter chapter 1. And this, by the way, if you're looking for a text and why we believe our scriptures, why I can find confidence in the Bible, this is probably the best one. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look how Peter describes the Scriptures and his message, his gospel proclamation. So I'm going to pick up in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. These are eyewitness Scriptures. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, these are are eyewitness human accounts, divinely inspired by majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, audible confirmation from heaven. We ourselves, speaking of the disciples, the apostles who walk with Jesus, heard this very voice born from heaven. This is not the game of telephone, this is coming from an original source. For we were with him on the holy mountain, his transfiguration, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So it's not just segmented or apart from the Old Testament as you will get in in a lot of teachers. Well, the Old Testament was one thing, the New Testament is another thing. This is a confirmation of the Old Testament scriptures to which you will do well to pay attention, as so should you, as a lamp shining in a dark place. This is revelation and light in a dark world. Until, how long should you read the scriptures? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is meant to transform hearts and speak into people. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not personal interpretation. This is corroborated accounts. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man. True prophecy, that is. 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every inspired writer of Scripture is man speaking from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is Mark. He's following Peter's example of these eyewitnesses and of these accounts. And so the first thing you need to know is that uh, no church father, no one in church history doubts Mark's authorship. And, and uh, another reason that this is important is because the church has nothing to gain by some secondary character in the Bible, John Mark, being an author. It'd be a lot more credibility if we said this is the gospel of Peter, because Peter's first and foremost, Peter's up front. This is the gospel of, of John Mark. We have nothing to gain from having some secondary man be the author. And this is our earliest gospel account. We think it's probably written around A.D. 65. That means about 30, 30 plus years after Jesus' death. So within the lifetime of people who walk with Jesus, and right before Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome. And so I want to give you a couple of uh, historical accounts of Mark's authorship. And I think this is helpful to get his purpose. So when I say historical, Papias, who's a church father, he wrote in the early 2nd century, meaning early 100s. I mean, he wrote within uh, about 60, 50 to 60 years of Mark writing. This is within the, the lifetime of some who were alive when, when Mark was alive. Here's what Papias wrote, and this, wrote, and this is recorded in uh, Eusebius' church history. This is the first of many testimonies. I won't get into them all, but I think as you listen to him write, it'll help kind of answer some of the questions that people have had about Mark and set us up for the book. So Papias says, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of the things said or done by the Lord. So this is important for us to take a side note here. Um, this is one of the complaints that people have about the Gospels. Well, Matthew, Mark, you, Matthew, Mark, you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't agree, uh, so they must contradict one another. When ancient writers wrote, they were less concerned with, with chronology being strictly in order. They were more concerned with, with theme and uh, building on intent. So that's why Papias brings this up, because this argument was brought in the first century. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, and to leave out nothing of what he heard, and to make no false statements in him. So Mark wrote as he wrote intentionally and as the Holy Spirit intended. Uh, one more, Clement of Alexandria. This is later in the second century. It's about 100 years after Mark wrote. When Peter had publicly preached the word of, uh, at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel that those present, who were many, exhorted Mark as one who had followed Peter for a long time and remembered what had been spoken to make a record of what he said. And that he did the, this and distributed the gospel among those who asked him. So now we kind of get a, a picture of this is Mark's role. He's one of Peter's primary disciples. And they're saying, write this stuff down. We've heard Peter teach. Preserve it. We want to pass this around. And this is what Mark does sitting at the feet of Peter who sat at the feet of Jesus. So that's kind of the historical uh, you know, precursor to why this text is considered part of our Bible. But to understand further... Not just that he's Peter's disciple, but who is Mark? So Mark was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he came from a, a Greek background, didn't grow up in Jerusalem, but he is Jewish. And he was very young during the life of, of Jesus. Um, 
And so we know that his family was, was central to what was going on in the early church because the early church in Acts used to meet in his mother's home. Look at Acts 12.12. 12. And so the, the context of Acts 12 is that Peter was in prison. And an angel comes and let, lets Peter out, and he's disoriented, doesn't really know what's happening. When you realize this wasn't a dream, this actually happened, he went to the, the place where all the disciples were gathering, and this, these are the details that we get in Acts. So Acts 12, 12 says this, when he, speaking about Peter, when he realized this, that it wasn't a dream, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was, was Mark. Okay, why is it Mark? Why is it John Mark? So like we've seen with, with Paul, they would have two names, one their Hebrew name, one their Roman name. So John is his Hebrew equivalent, um, and then Mark, is just, Mark was one of the most common Roman names. And so he was known by either one, depending on what circles he ran, and eventually he just became John Mark. Um, and we know that his mother, Mary, had a home. She was probably well-to-do if a lot of the disciples could gather there and where many were gathered together and were, were praying. So as a, a young child, he is witness to the church gathered in his own home. And he plays a minor role throughout the New Testament. If you see going on through Acts, he's, he labors along the uh, apostles. He travels with Paul, and then he ends up creating division between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is, is his cousin. Mark is a little scared. Barnabas sides with, with Mark. Paul gets, Paul gets mad, kind of writes off John Mark. Um, but later on, he gets, he, he gets redeemed as a fellow and helpful worker in, in Colossians. He's, we see his close relationship with Peter. P- Peter speaks about him as a son at the end of 1 Peter. So he's integrally uh, woven into the early work of the church. And then church tradition tells us that he evangelized and planted the church in Alexandria, in, um, in, well, evangelized Egypt and then planted the church in Alexandria. And the church in Alexandria was, was, was primary. It was kind of the uh, seed of, of the church. It would go back and forth between Rome and Alexandria. So Mark played a, a very important role in the early uh, function of the church, but also the, um, the uh, growth of the church beyond that. And so who did Mark write to and where did he write? So as we're going to go through Mark, and I'll pull out these details, but we're going to see that Mark um, does not assume Jewish customs. Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience, so he talks about Jewish things as if you know what he's talking about. But if you're not Jewish, then a lot of these festivals and the terminology are going to go over your head. But Mark, right, doesn't assume that. He explains Aramaic words. He explains Jewish festivals or or Jewish uh, accounts, basically. But he also brings in a um, a, a lot of Roman accounts and a lot of Roman details. And so we know that he was with Paul in Rome. We know that he was with Peter in Rome. And he's writing with a lot of Roman details, not assuming Jewish knowledge. So Mark most likely is writing from Rome to a Roman audience. So many have called this the Gentile gospel. So this is the gospel to us. Those who do do not grow up Jewish, and this is a gospel for 21st century America. Uh, Mark is a man of action. There is not a lot of um, fluff or unnecessary details. Mark goes, Mark is the, the, the action gospel, goes from one account to the next account to the next account. This is, this is condensed. This is the uh, kind of Michael Bay version of, of, um, of a gospel where there is a lot of excitement, there's a lot going on, and not a lot of downtime. So he's very much like Peter in that. He is a man of action, and he's writing to Gentiles with a specific purpose. 
Um, and with that, he's more concerned with Jesus' works than his words. So we're not going to get a whole lot of Jesus' teaching. We will get some, but we'll get a, a lot of his, of his miracles and the signs and the wonders that he performed. One word you'll see often is immediately, and I will bring that up. That's, he moves on, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and this happened, and this happened. Mark wants this to be a page turner. He wants you to go from one one account to the next, one story to the next, so that you are drawn in and carried along in the writing. And he's less concerned with the historical details as Luke. Uh, Luke does a great job with that. He's less concerned with the Old Testament fulfillment than, than Matthew. They all have their own purpose. Um, and he's not really concerned with Jesus just being a good moral example or a good teacher. His concern is that Jesus is Almighty God in the flesh. He starts that from, from section, or excuse me, from sentence one. And he wants you fixed on Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God. He wants you to, to repent and believe in him because here is where everlasting life is. That is Mark's purpose. And um, we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to cover one verse today. So we'll cover a few more beyond this. But uh, verse one is all meat, no milk. So we're going to look at every word. And um, I would say that it is the, the purpose statement of this gospel. And so your, your assignment today is every one of you should have Mark 1.1 memorized. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You can do that. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It should be ingrained in your memories now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who speaks, as a God who reveals, as a God who draws his people to himself, as a God who draws his people into his word that you want us to be engaged because you want us to know you. You want us to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly man, truly God truly able to save sinners from themselves and from your wrath. You want us to know the good news that God saves sinners, that there is peace and reconciliation and hope through Jesus Christ, that there is eternal life in Him. There are many others who claim good news, but this is the only news that is truly good and Lord, I pray that this is uh, evidently clear to us this morning, that your Spirit would bring to our minds and our hearts the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that if we know him, we would be confident and sure in him. And if we don't, those in this room who do not know him, that they would be convicted, that their hearts would be turned, that they would turn to him and love him. Because he loved the world enough to lay down his life for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, like I said, all meat, no milk. We're going to begin with beginning. So Mark's gospel starts with one Greek word the same way that John does and the same way that Genesis does. Beginning. And so in Genesis and in John, we're looking at origin. The, be the beginning of all things. In the beginning. In the beginning. Here... Um, Mark is looking at sequence. This is, the, this is the beginning of the gospel. And so we're looking at the beginning of the gospel proclamation. And so Mark gets to what's most important right out of the gate. 
that Jesus Christ is man, and He is the Son of God, and He begins to, and He wants to prove it, and He will begin next week. We're going to look at the last Old Testament prophet. Yes, we are in the New Testament. We're looking at the last Old Testament prophet in John the Baptist, um, and the uh, the uh, seeds of the gospel that have been all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, uh, but now we're seeing it fully. And so I want, I'm going to have this up on the screen, Luke 16, 17. So Jesus is going to talk about this, this distinction. Why is this the beginning? Because if you've been here for any amount of time, we preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And it is there. There are seeds and shadows of it, but now it is being proclaimed overtly. It is being proclaimed publicly because the content of the gospel is now walking on earth. So there's the difference between preaching the gospel of the kingdom to come and preaching the gospel of the kingdom that has come. And Jesus explains it this way in Luke 16, 17. So speaking to the Pharisees who are self-righteous and speaking about the kingdom of God, this is how he explains it. Sorry, this is Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and of... Um, and everyone forces his way into it. So we'll get into that, the latter part. But the law and the prophets were until John. So the Old Testament proclamation was until John. And then the good news of the kingdom of John, or excuse me, and now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So what he's saying is this good news, John is the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. He is the, the uh, forebearer. He goes before the Lord to, so that people know this is the real good news. Everything that every prophet before me has been speaking about, it is here now. We're going to spend next week on, on John the Baptist. And so Jesus' ministry is at the heart of the gospel. The, 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 the beginning is the beginning of his ministry. Well, Mark doesn't mention Jesus' birth account. And we love Christmas here. Um, we meaning America, not all of us. Um, but Jesus' birth account is important, but it's not the point. It's not central to the content of the gospel. You don't need to celebrate a baby in, in, a, in a manger to, to, to know the gospel account. Mark starts at the good part. The good part is there's this guy who's not just a guy who takes on flesh and, and, and proclaims eternal life through the forgiveness of sins and faith in him. That is the good stuff. That's the, I'm going to skip right to that. Not, that, not, not to minimize Jesus' birth, but it helps to, to, to make Matthew's case and to make Luke's case to address the birth. But it doesn't help Mark's case. So that's why Mark is getting right to the gospel message. And so what we're going to see in this is that our gospel, uh, our gospel explanation does not have to be too complicated. There's this guy, Jesus. He's also God. And he preaches a gospel of forgiveness of sins. And if you repent and believe in him, you will have eternal life. Mark tells us that you don't have to have all of this, this knowledge and background and a bunch of extra details to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that. This is who Jesus is. This is what, what, what he's done. Believe in him. You can't make them believe. You can't make them understand. But if the Holy Spirit is working, just declare it as Mark does, and he will do the work. And that's, that's what Mark is. He is a messenger of the gospel, just like John the Baptist. And again, more on that next week. Um, so the beginning of the gospel. Gospel. A lot of us know this word means good news. Uh, euangelion is, a, is, is the Greek word. From where we get evangelical. So when someone says it's, that they're evangelical, um, 
Hopefully it means that you care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not always. Uh, But why do I mention that? Why do I bring that up? Because this is not a New Testament word. Uh, From what we understand, Mark's probably the first one to use it. This is actually a Roman word. Um, or excuse me, it's, it's a Greek word, but used in, in Roman culture as, as meaning victory in battle. So when a herald, a messenger would, would come from the, from the front lines and their side won, he would run as hard as he could and as fast as he could to get to those behind the line or, or, or to tell the king or whoever's left at home, we won, there's, there, there's victory, I've got good news. And if you read through Kings, um, you read through Samuel and read through Kings, you'll, you'll see this. You'll see heralds running. Um, where, where was it? I, I won't read it because I won't have enough time. But 2 Samuel 18, if you want to see this account. 2 Samuel 18, verses 24 to, to, to 28. Uh, you've got the watchman up in the tower. I'll just paint a picture for you. And they see someone running in the distance. And they say, hey, David, someone's running. They say, oh, he runs like so-and-so. He must have had a funny run or something. And, um, and, and, then, and then they say, oh, he's, he's, he's coming. He's running quickly. That means he has good news. And so they, they say again, he's coming from the battlefield, he has good news, and he comes to David's feet. He say, blessed be you, because the Lord has slain those who raised their hand against you. I have good news that your enemies have fallen under the sword. This is good news from battle, and this is what our gospel means, and I, I love how Mark takes this. Because he takes the, the, the battle against light and, and darkness, against life and death, against, uh, against, against sin and righteousness, and the battle has been won. The victory is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is good news. This is what Mark is saying. This is victory because the battle has been won, and it is good news. And Mark, his purpose is the gospel. He uses this noun seven times, more than all the other gospel accounts combined. Now, Luke uses the the verb, but as far as the noun, the gospel, it's all throughout Mark's accounts. And there's an important distinction here. Because this word, when it was used in Greek and Roman culture, it was always used in the plural. Gospels, or a gospel, not the gospel. Whenever you see it in Scripture, it's always in the singular. There's, always, there's only one. There's only one good news. There's only one message. Because there were lots of good newses, uh, that's even a word, in, in Greece and Rome at the time. And what gospel? And again, if you want to understand Mark, you have to understand Peter. If you turn to Acts chapter 10, you're going to see Peter's gospel explanation. Acts chapter 10, a lot of things happen in Acts, a lot changes in Acts. But in Acts chapter 10, this is when Peter is sent to the house of of Cornelius. So the first time Peter is sent to a Gentile's house, he doesn't even want to step inside. But he sees a, a vision that no one is unclean anymore. And they're on the edge of their seat. They're praying, Lord, send us someone to give us good news. And Peter shows up at the door. He's like, am I at the right place? This is a bunch of Gentiles. And they, they tell him um, that we've been, we've been praying and we've been asking. And so here's what Peter says. We're in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. This is Peter's gospel explanation, which I would argue is a summary of Mark. You're going to see a lot of details in here that we will see in Mark. And this is just what Mark is unpacking in more detail. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning 
from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. See, Peter starts with John the Baptist. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, and we'll get to that uh, next couple weeks, with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Peter mentions Jesus' works, and so does Mark. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the, all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. When Peter says this, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they repent and believe and there's a celebration and they're baptized. This is Peter's gospel explanation. And if your children are next door and they're going through the gospel project, they should know these details. A four- or five-year-old could explain these details, and so should we be able to explain it. This is, this is Peter's gospel proclamation. You notice this is not a, an hour sermon, so those of us who uh, struggle with being wordy have to preach for an hour. Peter preaches for three minutes, and the Holy Spirit converts them all. So this is a lesson to us. We don't have to be complicated. We don't have to try to answer everyone's questions. We just proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done and let the Holy Spirit do the work. This is a great pattern for us to follow, and you're going to see a lot of these details as we go through Mark. So as we think about gospels, we think about good news and what Peter proclaimed, I want to ask you to examine yourselves for a moment. Do you know how good this news is? Do you, know, do you really know how good this news is? That Almighty God would take on flesh. That Almighty God would go to the cross and lay down His life that we could have life in Him. We are enemies of God. None of us does good. None of us seeks after God, as the psalmist tells us and as Paul tells us. But He sought after us that we might have peace and be reconciled to God. Could there be better news? But do we lose sight of how good this is? Do we get so distracted by so many other things and so many other gospel promises? Do you ever think about that Jesus would do that for me? That God would die for me? That I might be reconciled to Him? If that doesn't sound like good news to you, Talk to me afterward. Talk to one of us afterward. Cry out to God. Because if that doesn't sound like good news, you don't know how bad the bad news is. Every one of your sins is a death sentence. Every one of your sins separates you from God. And if you're not realizing that at the moment, you just sinned. And that separates you from God. But, there was, but God came to earth so that whoever believes in his name would have life. That's Peter's message. That's Mark's message. That's our message. Simple and pedestrian as we may be, it's good news. And the power and the work is not within us. It's within the Holy Spirit.
So it's important, though, that we know the good news, but we know that many other people claim good news. So again, this is not a biblical word. Caesar Augustus used this word. Every year he would celebrate his birthday and he would call it a euangelion. He would call it a good news to the world. Caesar would say, this is good news. I've been born on this day. Celebrate me. That is a false gospel that's easy to spot. But in our culture, we have a lot of false gospels that are maybe not as easy to spot. I mean, think about all of the people who proclaim good news today. I'm just going to give you a few examples. I mean, the obvious one, if you are in Christian circles, you've heard of a prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel basically says God wants you to have what you want most. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to please yourself. God wants you to be healthy. This prosperity gospel, the good news is God wants you, God wants for you what you want for you. Until it isn't good news. Until the healing doesn't come. The promotion doesn't come. The money doesn't come flowing in. And then who's to blame? You or God. It's not really good news. There's also a political good news political gospel this party this policy or this president or any other adjective or noun you want to stick in there this political change this is going to be the gospel you need they're going to fix everything until they don't until four years later or a year later or a week later when something changes and you realize that wasn't really good news anyway Of course, that good news falls short, but many people subscribe to that gospel. And there's the pleasure gospel. The good news that if you do everything that makes you feel good, you'll be complete and you'll be whole. Anybody ever tried that? How far does that get you? The pleasure gospel says that if it just makes me feel good, it is good. And so if it doesn't make me feel good, it's got to be bad. So that means... I'm God, and my own, my own feelings are my, my own worship. That is a pleasure gospel that many companies are making a lot of money off of. Many people have a lot of influence over. Just do what makes you feel good. Follow your heart. Worst advice ever. We also have a physical gospel. That if you just eat right, you work out enough, you make yourself look good enough, then other people will validate you and you'll feel great about yourself. Or you will look in the mirror and you'll feel happy with with what you see. If my physical being is put together, if I just eat right, I'll be great until I get by a car or it doesn't last. Everything's dying, everything's fading away. That can't be really good. The gospel is so much better than this. The gospel is so much better than all of these. Because each one of them will fall short. Each one of them is going to disappoint. Each one of them is good for a moment. I want you to think about, do you believe the gospel? The good news? Or is it one of these other gospels? Or maybe insert your own. What truly brings you joy? What brings you comfort? Where is your assurance? Where can you rest? Is it in politics? Is it in prosperity? Is it in, is it in your, your health? Is it in your own pleasure? 
Because every one of us has been disappointed by every one of those things. They are not and cannot save you. And they are not good news. Because there's a new headline that's coming tomorrow. But the good news of Jesus Christ is the same headline day after day. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Good news, Jesus Christ is God and man. Good news, Jesus Christ came to, to, to save sinners. Good news, if you put your faith in him, you will live with him forever and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Good news, that will always be good news. Every time you wake up, every time you breathe, that is still good news. That's why there's only one gospel. Sorry, Jonathan, I'll get that later. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is not just news. The gospel is a person. The beginning of the gospel of. What is that good news? Jesus Christ. Paul here addresses, not Paul, Mark here addresses his humanity. Jesus Christ. Jesus is his, his given name, his first name. It's a common name in Israel. Same as Joshua. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. That's his personal name. What does that tell us? He is actually a man. He ate and he slept and he, and he, and he drank and he got frustrated with, with uh, disciples of, of little faith. He had emotion. He cried. He truly walked. And he truly lived. He's truly human. But this is not any ordinary man. He's Jesus the Christ. Now this is his title. Christ. Messiah. Anointed one. This is the one who is, who is promised in the Old Testament. All of the Jewish expectations for the Messiah. There was one that they were looking forward to. One who would fulfill, fulfill all the promises of God. The promised prophet, the promised priest, the promised king. The promised uh, son of David. The promised seed of Abraham. The promised uh, shepherd of Israel. The promised Passover lamb. And the one who would reign forever and rescue Israel from all of their, their, their tormentors. He is Jesus, the Christ. This is His humanity. God became man, as we saw a couple weeks ago in adoption. God became man so that men might become sons of God. We can become sons because He is a son and He went before us. His humanity tells us that He is a real person. He is the promised Messiah, but His divinity is what is able to bring humanity and the divine together. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is both, both man and God. So when Mark says here, he is the Son of God, it means he is equally God on earth. At the same time, Jesus Christ and Son of God. So important, this is placed at integral parts of Mark's gospel account. You will see kind of the crescendo at the end when he breathes his last on the cross and the centurion looks up and he says truly this man is the son of god this is the whole point that you understand that he is god in the flesh because if you lived in greek and roman times you would have plenty of gods and goddesses and they would have all kinds of relations with with humanity and there would be demigods and sons of gods walking around and all this 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 mythology they were very familiar with the divine and the human interacting with one another and so Mark is drawing on this. You think you know gods and goddesses. You think you know God. This is the Son of God. And we've got witnesses. We've got proof. We've got people who ate with him after his resurrection. 
And so this challenges the idea of Roman sons of God, smaller case. But this also challenges and infuriates the Jews. Look at John chapter 5. So if you're in your Bible in Mark, uh, go to the last of the four Gospels in John chapter 5. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus? Why did they want to kill him? Well, John tells us. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why did the Jews want to kill him? Tell us, John. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is punishable by death in Israel if you are not indeed the Son of God. How does Jesus respond? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. There's this beautiful interplay between Father and Son. For the, Son, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. This is a long explanation, but all this means that Jesus is the Son of God and every implication of it. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son? This is infuriating to the Jews who have hard hearts who don't want to believe. That God the Father and God the Son are one. But this is also an encouragement to the saints. The Jews are frustrated, and the saints are in awe. Look at Matthew chapter 14. We all know the account of Jesus walking on the water. Matthew brings in the detail about Peter going out after him, and Peter, in a moment of faith, walks with him and then stumbles for a moment. So there's this conversation. It must have been an amazing conversation. In the middle of a storm, Jesus is on the water, outside the boat. Peter's in the boat, looking at the water, talking to Jesus. Matthew 14, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked in the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. If you find out that this guy, this man, is the Son of God, you will either hate him and want to kill him, or you will worship him. There is no middle ground. This is what this declaration says. Mark is drawing a line in the sand. This is the Son of God. Believe him or die. The Pharisees hardened their heart and hated him. The disciples worshipped him. And so this is where we're going to land the plane. 
What is the most important question anyone can ever ask? And what is the content of the gospel? Who is Jesus Christ? And what does that mean to you? Not to say that your interpretation is right. If he is anything other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you're wrong. But you must ask yourself the question, what does it mean to me? Does anything change? If I go out, if I'm the one hit by the car today, does anything change? Do I have life in him? Did he die for my sins? This is the gospel message. This is the gospel promise. That as surely as God raised him from the dead, if you believe in him, he will raise you from the dead. Because there is only one gospel. There's only one way. There's only one truth. There's only one life. There are many other people claiming small g gospels out there. All of us are tempted to listen to other gospels. What one are you listening to? Where are you finding good news? Where are you looking for salvation apart from Jesus Christ, the Son of God? So in Mark, we're going to learn about all he is all he's done, and what he is doing. And I hope you are encouraged, and if you're not encouraged, I hope you're convicted. We're going to learn about what it means to believe in him, what it means to have life in him, and what it means to follow him. So the question I'm going to ask every week is, do you believe? And this is the question we ask when we think about the gospel and we talk to others. Do you believe? Because if you believe, there is life in him.